now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Paul Anthony Wallace, author of the international bestseller, Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden, which is endorsed by Eric Von Daniken. Paul is a popular speaker, researcher, and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. As a senior churchman, he has served as church doctor, a theological educator, and archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. Today, his work probes the world's mythology and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. We will be talking about his latest book today, which is Echoes of Eden, and that should be coming out very soon. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome back. G'day, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your show again. You know, it's been about a year since you've been here, and my channel's about doubled since you've been here, so a lot of my audience may not know you. So if you don't mind, can you just give everybody a quick background? Sure. Well, people know me these days for writing in the field of paleocontact. And that's the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other ET civilizations. And what surprises a lot of people is how I've got into the field of paleocontact, because my background is in the world of Christian ministry. And as you just said, I was... 33 years in Christian ministry as a church doctor, troubleshooter for churches, as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church, and a theological educator, training pastors in the skills of hermeneutics, what's called hermeneutics, and that's the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And it was actually that field of study that got me into some anomalous areas particularly in the Hebrew texts of what we call the Hebrew canon or the Old Testament. And it was what I found there as I drilled down into translation issues that led me into the world of ancient ET contact. It almost seems like what you do borderlines anthropology or archaeology. Oh, it touches on so many things, but it's certainly very much about human origins once you start peeling back the layers of ancestral story around the world. And as I did that, I found that our ancestors' stories of origins completely dovetail with their understanding of who we are as a species and what our human potential is. And so the challenge for me as a writer was writing a book that was had a focus that wasn't about absolutely everything. But I found that those were really the threads that were interwoven in world mythology, ancestral story, indigenous traditions, human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. I recently went back and watched 1984, and you've probably either read it or seen it. And the the hero, well, I don't know if you really call him a hero, but he worked in a part of the government where they rewrote history. Do you think all this information that you are discovering has been and has currently been rewritten? Well, all official history is rewritten history, if I can put it that way. And one of the things I look at in Echoes of Eden is really the question of whose history counts as history. So, for instance, I live in Australia and there has been a civilization on this continent scientists now estimate 
at least 60,000 years of continual presence of the Aboriginal Australian culture here in Australia. And they have their stories of origins, their explanations of human origins, their explanations of the cosmos. And then in the 18th century, the British turned up and took over. And it's the British explanations of history that became official history. The indigenous history became something else. And so now that's just marginalised as story, fable, myth, and it just doesn't count as history or science or anthropology or anything else. And this happens really whenever there is a process of colonisation. Sometimes it's done quite violently, and sometimes it's just done through a cultural process. So, for instance, when the Catholic forces of Portugal and Spain went into Central and South America, they went in with an agenda to obliterate the existing stories, sciences, philosophies. They did this by burning to a cinder all the libraries of the great Mayan-based cultures of that continent. And just in case any of those texts should survive, they took the double measure of executing all the priesthoods so that no one would know how to read those texts. So the old explanations of everything were deleted and then replaced by Catholic orthodoxy. So that's a very violent example. But if you think about what happened when Britain went into Ghana, for instance, in 1874, it didn't do that. It didn't slaughter the witch doctors. It didn't burn down the schools. It simply created an environment in which if you wanted to get on, then you would learn to dress British and speak British and act British. And to the extent that you could do that, well, then you look like a good candidate for a good job, promotion, etc. And that repositioning meant you had to distance yourself from your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, particularly if they were persisting in the old ways and telling the old stories and practicing the old ceremonies. And you just would want to look sophisticated and modern. And so you would you would shun that mother or grandmother. That was a relative to be ashamed of because now they're a witch doctor. Now they're an idolater. And all this nasty demonizing language is put upon what was already there before the uh, colonial force arrived. And that's really been the pattern of colonization all through history, which is why I say all official history is rewritten history. Because when you invade a country and take over, you have to be the news agency. You decide what is history, what isn't, what's true, what's false, what's news, what's fake news. You can't have other authorities, including indigenous priesthoods, running around giving alternative information. And so in that way, the history that the locals carry is marginalized, pushed down, sometimes nearly obliterated, and yet always it finds a way of resurfacing and surviving. And Echoes of Eden looks at those processes. Where does that information go? How does it resurface? And what is that information? Is your new book, Echoes of Eden, a continuation of your other books, or can you just read it as a standalone book? Oh, you can read any of them as a standalone book. They're absolutely designed that way. Each book is a gateway book. You should be able to put it into the hands of a person who's got zero interest in the topic, gives it zero credibility, and yet if they pick it up and read it, by the end they'll think, oh, there's something serious 
here for me to give some attention to. And so Escaping from Eden asks the question, because this is the beginning of my own journey, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? And that's the journey of that book. The Scars of Eden asks, has humanity confused the idea of God with memories of ET contact? And we make that journey. And I found that after I'd written those two books, at the end of Escaping, I realized that the implication of Escaping from Eden is that you and I have far more ability to unlock in terms of higher cognitive abilities, um, abilities that our ancestors had in the deep past and we've lost more recently. And I thought, well, I've got to get back to that and explore that. And then in The Scars of Eden, by the end of that book, I'd realized where I have to go to unpack that topic. And it is in the initiation traditions an indigenous story that exists around the world. So once I'd written those two, I knew I had to write a third uh, and go to those places for those. Paul is in Australia and we just lost him, but we should have him back shortly. In your book, you talk about dragons. Is there a connection between dragons and ETs? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, In my studies in the Hebrew scriptures, I was quite surprised when I started looking at it from the perspective of more etymological translations. So where you go to the root meanings of the words and reread the stories that way. And it's a very good exercise because it's a way of it's a way of peeling back centuries and centuries of assumption and presupposition that we layer on top of the texts. Go back to the root meanings and see how the stories sound then. And sure enough, in the Hebrew canon, there are numerous accounts of what we would call close encounters, and for different people groups, first contact experiences with entities that today we would call ETs. These are non-human entities with advanced abilities in travel that would appear to be interplanetary, interstellar, interdimensional. So we call those ETs. And it's not hard to spot once you approach the translation this way. Alongside that, you have narratives that make it clear that we're looking at a period in human history when our ancestors were governed over by entities that were not human. Uh, But for some of the story that we're reading, there is a prohibition in describing, depicting, carving or painting the entities that are doing the governing. And so we might be left very intrigued as to who these beings are. Are they, do they look like us? Are they the same as us, but uh, more adva- with more advanced tech? Or were they different? And then alongside those texts, a text where you have entities describing themselves in terms that sound very draconian. Uh, that uh, sound very reptilian, where the skin is described, where the flight feathers are described, where the length of the snout is described, and where destruction by fire seems to accompany these draconian entities. Those stories exist all around the world, and they exist in the Hebrew scriptures as well. And in Echoes of Eden, I point out that there is a phonetic similarity to many of the names for these draconian entities 
that are named all around the world. And I won't, um, I'll, I'll save up the punchline of that story for people reading Echoes of Eden, but they intersect with the stories that are now translated as Yahweh stories in the Bible. So many Bible readers, when they see that name, they'll think, oh, that's the holy name of God. I'm reading a God story. Do a bit of the translation work I argue for, and you realize it's told as a God story now, but at root, it's one of these other stories, running in parallel with dragon narratives around the world, running in parallel with recollections of a time when we were colonized by someone else from somewhere else. And indeed, Hebrew scriptures are quite specific as to what regions of space these beings came from. And so, yes, there is definitely an overlap. But another way in which dragons overlap with ETs, if you go to the Mesoamerican stories of the Mayan tradition, you will have depictions of phenomena in those texts that to a modern eye, it's not difficult to recognize um, spacecraft. We're given descriptions of craft that are made of metal, that have shining lights on them, that have a blast of fire that trails from the back of them when they fly through the sky, and that that fire trail is so bright that when they're flying through the sky, they're brighter than the moon. We look at that and we say, all right, that's technology. And there are some technological stories that get told as dragon stories. And the uh, Olmec, Toltec, other Mesoamerican stories are examples of that, where you've got entities described as dragons that we look at and we think, I think actually that's a space shuttle. Hmm. And so there's, there's quite a spectrum going on in these ancient stories. And I think sometimes dragons are entities, sometimes they're craft. And I would say invariably we're looking at E.T. entities. I initially thought that people somehow dug up dinosaur bones and they saw these giant bones and they made up the story that, okay, it was a dragon. But I'm not even sure if they did that. And to me, it sounds like it's something that's much deeper than that. I think it is deeper than that. I mean, we haven't really had a coherent dinosaurology for very long. That's, that's quite recent, really, in human thought. Whereas the dragon stories do go much further back, and we haven't dug up anything that quite matches the dragon narratives that we have. It doesn't match all the descriptors. And that's one of the intriguing things about these texts, that we're reading about things that you and I have not seen, not even in our fossil record. All right, this may make you a little uncomfortable, but... Do you still think we're being governed by an alien race? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, in The Scars of Eden, I talk about the psychological and geopolitical aftereffects of being governed by entities that have no fellow feeling with human beings. And when you start looking at the history of warfare, um, I mean, you get to the 20th century and you're looking at decisions being made by, well, I don't want to name specific families, mm -hmm. but by certain powers around the world that plunge us into a number of wars that are of great advantage to some families with stakeholdings in different industries and might look like a really good idea financially. Mm 
But you can only see it that way if you have zero fellow feeling with the human race as a whole. And you have to ask, well, where does that come from? Is it simply the psychological legacy of the human experience of leadership, that our original experience of governance was by entities that were not human and had no fellow feeling with us, and we've just carried on with that model of leadership. And I think there's something to be said for that idea because, uh, Jeff, you and I live in a culture where if somebody says strong leadership, they probably mean leadership that isn't interfered with by too much compassion. Strong leadership will mm -hmm. force a policy through no matter what the human cost, thank you very much. Whereas if somebody comes along and says, we're going to think very carefully about uh, who this is going to affect and we're going to hear from everybody it's going to affect before we come to a decision and we'll only come to a decision when we reach agreement, people say, ah, oh, that's not leadership or that's weak leadership. It's actually much harder to lead that way than pushing everything through by force. Why do we think in those terms? Is it just the psychological legacy? Or when we look at the history of the, um, the apportionment of resources, um, warmongering through history, is it actually that there is a layer of human governance that is not human, that, that has no fellow feeling for that reason? And if you go to the work of Robert Kirk, um, a Presbyterian minister in Aberfoyle, Scotland, now... Everything I've just said should tell you this is a very conservative person I'm describing. Mm -hmm. Aberfoyle, Scotland, 1500s, Presbyterian. That's very evangelical, very conservative. But when he went to his parish, he listened to the local stories and he began to find a coherence to them and a weight to them and an integrity to them and a long standing to them that made him feel there's real information that's been curated by this population. And out of that, he wrote a book called The Secret Commonwealth, in which he argued, here's the punchline, mm. that there is a non-human layer of governance over planet Earth that has a stakeholding in the planet, in Project Humanity, but is not human. And he found the evidence for that in the Fae stories of the... Scottish people among whom he was working. Now, when he wrote that, well, that would have been earth-shattering for any of his Presbyterian colleagues, but he was only repeating what ancestral narrative has put to us culture by culture, century by century, all around the world. Our ancestors believed it was impossible to understand why things work the way they do without understanding there's a non-human layer to the governance of planet Earth. So, yes. I don't know what news you get down there. And for those of you who don't know already, Paul's from Australia. But here, with what's heating up in Eastern Europe, we see threats in the news of nuclear war. Do you think ETs would prevent a global nuclear war scenario? Um, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, yes, I do. The reason I've come to that conclusion is that in the intelligence of the East and the West, there is well-attested report of um, anomalous interference in the nuclear capabilities of the superpowers. So 
Russia and the United States of America had experiences where their nuclear warheads were uh, respectively um, enabled and disabled by a power that we don't know what it is. But the report was this was an ET interference. So that to me says that our neighbors have the power to interfere in our nuclear activities. And then the thing that makes me feel a little bit positive about that is that Chernobyl, when Reactor 4 went into meltdown, a UFO was sighted near Reactor 4 for, I think it was six hours by hundreds of local people, and it was reported by the official local news. And the reporter who wrote that up said he wondered if there was a connection between the presence of that UFO and the fact that Reactor 4 didn't go into full meltdown, because if it had, we would have lost a huge chunk of Europe. It would have become uninhabitable. Mm. And so that restraining hand, along with the ability to interfere, makes me somewhat optimistic that some of our neighbours would step in and say, ah, 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 we're not letting you go there. And when you listen to uh, the experience of contactees through thousands of years, a concern for the ecological welfare of our planet is one of the most recurrent themes that people share. So that's why I do take the view that I've just put. In your book, I was reading about cataclysm or cataclysms in Genesis, and I wasn't really clear about that. Was there does Genesis speak about more than one or just one? That's a great question. It certainly speaks about one. And the what we call the creation account, I argue in Escaping from Eden and my subsequent books, I argue that that's not really a creation story at all, that that is the visual recollection of our ancestors of a planet post-cataclysm. And that what we're looking at is the rehabilitation of a devastated planet by ET visitors who turn up and do that work of rehabilitation, much as we would do if we go into a country that's been devastated by floods, for instance. The first thing we do is go in and separate the waters. So you've got fresh, safe drinking water, and then you rehabilitate land that's safe to live on, so on and so forth. That's the process that's there in Genesis 1. So that's a a flood event, but something has happened to the sky as well. It's full of darkness, so you can't see the sun, the moon, and stars. To me, that suggests the kind of disruption that would be caused by something like the the Clovis Comet event that triggered the Younger Dryas cold period, where you've got massive flooding, but you've also got a pool of dust and ash and soot in the sky. All that has to be dealt with before life on Earth can reboot and civilization can reboot. The recollection of it is there in Genesis 1. It's there in the Sumerian source narratives. It's there in the stories that come out of the Andes and out of the Mayan culture. It's there in the Filipino story of the Tagalog, the hawk clearing the land from the floodwaters. And it's there in the Nigerian story of Osana Buar the almighty one above the waters, descending from space on what looked like a chain and doing his terraforming. There is a coherence of all these stories that suggest a memory 
of a rehabilitation post-massive flooding. Now, that could be the same flooding that's in Genesis 6, or it could be a different one. That could be the same reset that's in Genesis 11 that speaks of a technological civilization obliterated and then history starts again. Could be a different one. I'm coming to the view that by the time you reach Genesis chapter 11, you may well have read of five global resets. Uh, that's what I'm leaning towards. And when you start listening to the uh, stories from the Vedic traditions, I think there's some support for that idea at an international level. Genesis 11 certainly hints at a succession of civilizations on the planet. And I think that's certainly true. We, for instance, have found the megalithic remains of cultures that were here prior to the Younger Dryas Cold period, older than 10,000 years, which is everything we know about civilization, meaning we know nothing about the civilizations that went before off the coast of Yonaguni Jima, Japan, off the Gulf of Cambay, India, off the coast of Malta. We know nothing about the cultures of those cities. And that raises the possibility not only of two successive civilizations, but of many. And that's the view I've come to in my research. I think some people will say that every five to 7,000 years, the earth goes through something that may end up in a cataclysm. Have you heard anything like that? And so do you think we're destined for another one? Well, people who say that are in very good company because uh, Plato argued for that in his writing. If you read uh, Timaeus and Critias and Phaedo, you will hear Plato say exactly that. He believed every 5,000 years or so, there would be some cataclysm on a planetary scale that would take civilization back to a virtual zero. Now, he came to that conclusion through uh, studying under Socrates. Socrates came to that conclusion through his access to ancient Egyptian knowledge, which had been passed on to him through the family of Solon, who's a real historic Greek legislator. Solon said he derived that information from a, an ancient Egyptian priesthood that was curating information from the previous civilization. That's the story of Atlantis. That's where that story comes from. So the idea that um, there's a reset every 5,000 years or so, well, Plato was teaching that two and a half thousand years ago. And he even had a theory as to what caused it. And his theory was that it was the movement of objects through space impacting the planet. So that's it could be the movement of planets, could be the arrival of the moon, could be cometary impacts. He doesn't get very specific other than to say something coming from space does this fairly frequently. And if he's right, then actually we're somewhat overdue for a reset. In your book, you also speak about wormholes. How do those relate to our ancient past? Well, people started asking me about wormholes after I published Escaping from Eden. And I started hearing from veterans of war, particularly veterans of war from the theaters of war of Afghanistan and Iraq. And People who had been deployed in Iraq in 2003 were asking me what I knew about wormholes and their connection 
with the ancient cultures of Mesopotamia, that's the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian cultures. The reason they were asking me that is that they went in to that war on the same ticket that had been sold to all of us. We were there to save the Kurds uh, from despotic leadership, persecution, and annihilation. We were there to save the world from weapons of mass destruction. We were there to effect a regime change um, for the sake of the whole world. But war is a very layered thing. And even if all those were, were entirely genuine and sincere motivations, many servicemen found themselves, once they got there, on a different kind of assignment. And I started hearing from people who had found that their unit was on an archaeological mission, there to retrieve objects that would be sequestered and removed, uplifted from the country and taken to Israel or the USA. And so they began wondering, because this was happening less than two weeks into that invasion, they were left wondering, why am I risking my life and the life of my men for archaeological artifacts? What's the importance of them? Why is this unit barreling up huge quantities of sand and shipping out that out? What, who goes to war for sand? And as they began speaking with each other, particularly after they came home, the conversation uh, included report of ancient technology, um, portals, wormhole-creating technology. Now, NASA has been interested in technology to create wormholes, portal technology, for more than 30 years. The uh, Advanced Propulsions Unit has been studying that since the 1990s. We have identified portals. We have flown around them in craft. We've measured the wormholes, and we've measured how much matter travels through them. So these are very objective, real things. And even 30 years ago, the question was being asked by NASA, can we fly a craft through a wormhole? So we're very, very interested in them. And so when people came to me and said, what's the legitimacy of this idea? Because many of my peers say they think we were there because of uh, portals in Iraq. What I could tell the people who contacted me was, well, first of all, wormholes um, are based on real science. The Einstein-Rosen bridge is real science, real scientists. We spent millions and millions of dollars testing it and observing the phenomenon so it's a real world phenomenon and if you go to ancient texts go to the bible the mesopotamian stories if you want to know where on the planet to go to look for ancient portals well you'd be in exactly the right spot if you're in iraq that's mm. the location identified by genesis 11 that's the location identified by the sumerian stories and not the only place on earth either where those narratives exist. If you listen to Native American narratives from uh, New Mexico, Colorado, same thing exists there. If you listen to Aboriginal Australian narrative here in Australia, same thing exists here. And in Echoes of Eden, I talk about the, the Aboriginal experience of portals and wormholes on the Earth's surface. So there's a great deal of legitimacy uh, to that topic scientifically, uh, historically, in the history of war, and in our indigenous traditions. 
Well, it makes sense because I've often talked about how do the ships travel such great distances. And I didn't know that there was all this information about wormholes. I was there is. I think one of the reasons NASA's been trying to perfect this. Sorry to oh, cut it's okay. you off. No problem. I'm on a roll here. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons NASA's so interested is because of the observation of UAPs. So if you go back to 2004, uh, back to the Tic Tac encounters and start listening to what's been declassified from that time, one of the issues with responding to UAPs is that they ping into our airspace as if from nowhere. And so from that point of view, we've known, uh, I could say, that this technology exists for someone, even if we don't officially know for whom unofficially we might know and we want that technology and that is a wormhole pinging portal technology famously iconized in star trek that's the warp drive but as i say we have been investing millions into perfecting it for ourselves for more than 30 years Mm. and that's not that's not classified information that's in the public domain you can go to the nasa website and you can find that by searching it since a lot of my guests are near-death experiencers and some of them when they're having their experience encounter aliens or go to other planets i have often theorized that maybe somehow ships can go into some type of conscious realm or some other or the other the realm of where we are in the you know when we're not in a body and then travel at the speed of thought and then pop out of that realm into here i don't know if that would be considered a wormhole but well, that's, that's really interesting that you say that because, once again, if you listen to the, um, the flight crews who were dispatched to respond to the Tic Tac UAPs of 2004, that's how they spoke about the way those craft moved. They moved as if they were biological entities, and their suggestion was that it's actually the, the mind of the pilot that is controlling that craft and enabling it to ping through space. And there's been quite a lot of uh, serious thought and study invested into the possibility that what you're looking at is what you could call a consciousness drive, that there is some fusion of the consciousness, the mind of the pilot and the technology of the craft that means that it's almost like the two are wired together and that the pilot is going to uh, conceive of a region of space, and that's where we're going to ping. Once again, Star Trek has picked that up, and you can see that dramatized mm-hmm. in uh, Star Trek Discovery. Uh, it's not just science fiction. It is the report of U.S. defense personnel when they talk about engaging with these craft. You know, actually, one of my favorite science fiction shows that was highly based on wormholes was Farscape, an Australian show. Have you ever watched that? Oh, I've missed out. No, I need to see this. Oh, it's a, it's it, at the time it was rated the best sci-fi show ever. It came out in like the late nineties and most of the actors are Australian, but oh, I, I guess it wasn't aired in Australia. I don't know if it's still around, but we used to have the sci-fi channel and it was on the sci-fi channel here. And it's an amazing series. They're all on a living ship. It's a living being. And it's an American astronaut that somehow 
gets caught up in a wormhole and ends up on another galaxy and then off you go the story from there oh i like that i in the 90s i was still living in the uk so if they aired it here Mm -hmm. that's why i missed it yeah i'm pretty sure you can find it either on netflix or amazon or or something like that in recent years, it has come to light that U.S. intelligence has secretly invested millions of dollars into programs of remote viewing. How do you talk about that in Echoes of Eden? It's a really intriguing phenomenon, remote viewing. It's something I've experienced myself. Um, it's not something I control. It's something I've experienced sort of by accident a few times. Hmm. And so I had some awareness of it at a personal level. I was also involved in some exercises here in Canberra, Australia, that confronted me with the reality of the phenomenon. I couldn't, I couldn't debunk it once I'd seen it done by children in particular. But uh, it was extraordinary to discover that U.S. intelligence invested millions of dollars into programs of remote viewing over. I think it was a 25-year period from the 1970s through to the 1990s. All it's all covert operations. Uh, there was no, you know, public uh, program of remote viewing, but it existed and it was maintained from year to year, only on the basis that it was yielding information of uh, strategic intelligence value. But where did they get the idea that this was possible? Well, the U.S. got the idea from discovering that the Soviet Union had a remote viewing program up and running. And in the 1970s, we were in the depths of the Cold War. And the Soviet Union had a a very science-based worldview. It was not into religion, mysticism, spirituality, woo-woo. The Americans knew that if the Soviet Union had a program of remote viewing going, It would only be because it was yielding objectively valuable results. And the USA could not afford to allow the Soviet Union to have a strategic advantage in any area. So the USA had to have a program, too. They put one together. But it wasn't the first time that intelligence agencies had used or sought to use remote viewing. Uh, The US program had some really intriguing successes I think, I think by 1980, there'd been I think it was 300 remote viewing missions and 70% of them were calculated as having yielded a strategic uh, advantage. Um, the, the famous remote viewing successes were Ingo Swan remote viewing the rings of Jupiter before anyone had imagined that Jupiter had rings. We thought Saturn had rings and that was the end of that story. Nine months after Ingo Swan drew them, we saw the first first photographs of the rings of Jupiter as Voyager arrived and took those images. And then the following year, I think um, Patty Hearst, uh, the heiress, was located through remote viewing. And then the year after that, President Carter was the president at the time. A downed Russian jet in Zaire was located by a, um, um, well... President Carter called her a medium, but she was actually USAF personnel, a USAF officer, and she identified the longitude and latitude coordinates of that aircraft. That's how they found it. So all that 
was running along privately behind closed doors. Interesting, actually, hearing President Carter on this because he's an evangelical Christian. And if the average evangelical Christian and the average evangelical church said they were involved in remote viewing, they'd be given pretty short shrift. They'd be told, no, we don't do that. That's that's demonic. That's occult. Uh, you might get thrown out of some churches for saying you were doing that. But a Christian in power, it's a different story. Christian in power knows this is a useful human modality uh, that can yield us strategic intelligence value and therefore we're going to deploy it. And that was what happened, and President Card has been quite open about that. But as I say, not the first time it had been used. You go back to the court of Queen Elizabeth I in the 1500s. She is the person who laid the foundations of British intelligence, MI5 for uh, espionage, MI6 for counter-espionage. And she hired John Dee, who was one of the top scientists of the day, to develop... Uh, working protocols for remote viewing. So there that is, right in the roots of British intelligence. She wanted that because basically the country was broke and she wanted to know what her allies and enemies were thinking and planning. And if she didn't have the financial resources to place spies in every court, then remote viewing was the place she wanted to go. She Mm. believed it was possible because it is described in the Bible and she believed what she read there. But there may have been other reasons too, including the fact that the libraries of the uh, King of Spain and the King of Portugal would have recently received documents from uh, sequestered from Central and South America that also talked about uh, skills of remote viewing curated by our ancestors and practiced in the shamanic traditions of those cultures. And so by the end of the 1500s, that information is filtering its way through Europe. It's being written about in Germany uh, by a Benedictine monk called Johannes Trithemius. And so there are some sources out there suggesting this might be uh, a real uh, scientifically objective potentiality. And once again, in that era, it was a very fraught period in terms of international politics. And if there was any edge that the United Kingdom could gain, or Britain, I should say, to be more historically accurate, could gain from having something like remote viewing working, then they had to get it working before Spain did (laughs) or before the Dutch did, so on and so forth. It was taken very seriously. And Thousands of pages of information were produced by John Dee and his colleague, uh, Mr. Kelly, who was the practitioner that he hired. Thousands of pages of information which he believed he had gleaned, and this is the surprising aspect of the story, through contact with non-human entities. That was the modality he was pressing forward in in order to get remote communication and remote viewing working. Now, you said something, and I can't let this go. You said that remote viewing is in the Bible. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, there are a couple of moments where it crops up. Well, more than a couple. If you go to the Gospels, there's a moment when um, Jesus meets Nathaniel for the first time. Nathaniel's going to become one of his uh, 12. And um, 
Jesus says to him, I saw you under the fig tree. And that's all he has to say for Nathaniel to say, all right, okay, this guy is something. This guy, I think, is the Messiah. I'm going to give away the life I've lived to this point, and I'm going to follow him. What's the significance? I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel's response makes very clear there was no possible way Jesus could have seen or heard what he, Nathaniel, had done and said under the fig tree. Otherwise, there's no impact. It had to be impossible. Otherwise, there'd be no reaction. The only way Jesus could have seen and heard what Nathaniel had done under the fig tree was by remote viewing. And that's what catches his attention. It's there in the Old Testament as well, where the prophet Micaiah uh, remote views the sky council. So we're back to this non-human layer of human governance. And the prophet Micaiah is working for his king and needs to give advice on um, whether to move forward with a particular military aggression. And so the king wants information, and Micaiah remote views the Sky Council to find out what their agenda is, what they're planning, what information he can get from that source that will inform the king's decisions. So you've got that remote viewing there. And then you've got a moment where the Apostle Paul is unclear whether he's actually travelled through space and seen a command centre, or if he remote viewed it. And the fact that he's not sure which it was shows that he understands both to be possible. So those are just some little fragmentary examples of finding it in the text of the Bible. But certainly when you go to the Popol Vuh and the story of our ancestors being modified and upgraded, by other beings who come to planet Earth to rehabilitate the planet and take civilization on Earth to the next level, it's quite specific about a moment when our ancestors were engineered to the point where our vision was not limited in the way it is now. Now, today, our vision is limited by surfaces. We can't see through things. We can't see behind things. It's limited by distance. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see into space. It's limited by time. We can't see the past. We can't see the future. And the Popol view suggests that those limitations have not always been there, that our ancestors had vision that extended in all those directions before something was done to dial us down to this immediate perceptual field we're all familiar with today. And the hint is there in that story that if our ancestors had it, then it's latent within us. Because the way we were dialed down was not through re-engineering us, was not through changing our DNA. It was through introducing devices into the environment to dumb us down. So in the Mayan story, a vapor is sprayed over human populations that brain damages us to the point where our perceptual field comes down to this. In the uh, Nigerian story, devices are released into the environment that will make us anxious and sick to limit our cognitive abilities to the point where we are um, more easily managed. And this story of a dialing down of our cognitive abilities repeats all around the planet. And all the cultures that have curated those stories have also curated shamanic traditions designed to reactivate those parts of our brain 
to get remote viewing happening again. It's why when you go to shamanic traditions in South America or Africa uh, or Australia, you will have protocols and ceremonies that are thousands of years old that enable the shaman to do this, but also enable those the shaman is initiating to do it as well. I was checking out your YouTube channel, and it's very successful, so congratulations on that. And I noticed in one of your titles, it asks, was Jesus an alien? What is the answer to that question? In Escaping from Eden, I argue that Homo sapiens, as we know ourselves, are a bit of a blend of earthling heritage and a little bit of ET heritage, because all the ancestral stories talk about a moment when these advanced visitors combined something of their DNA with our DNA to upgrade us for higher consciousness and higher intelligence. Interestingly, way back when I was 11 years old, it was that question that first grabbed my attention and got me wondering whether we are in a populated universe or not, because I felt at the age of 11, there was a gap in our ability to explain ourselves as the alpha species on the planet. And when I went to my church school and I was told, well, we're the special creation of God, that's why we're in charge of the planet. I thought, well, that's great, but it's pretty obvious we're a kind of animal. If we were the special creation of God, wouldn't we be more different? Why, why is it obvious we're some kind of primate? And if I went to science for an explanation, science tells us that we are at the top of the tree because of high consciousness and high intelligence. Okay, where did that come from? Hmm, we're not quite sure. And I felt that there was that gap. Where did we get this massive leap forward in terms of consciousness and intelligence? Our ancestors said... It was a fusion of our ancestors with uh, visitors who are more developed, that that was how the upgrade occurred. So I said all that um, on my way to answering your question, which I've just forgotten. So remind me what the question was, Jeff. Was Jesus an alien? Okay, so we're all hybrids. That's mm -hmm. where I'm going with that. We've all got a bit of ET in us. So in that sense... Jesus is the same as us. He's human with a bit of, or I should say, earthling with a bit of ET. That's what a human being is. But there's another layer to the Jesus story, because along with those ancestral stories are stories from all around the world of what we would call indigo children or star children. And these are human children, but where there's been some, something anomalous about the conception, birth, growth of that child. Now, that's certainly the case in Jesus's story. Mary has a close encounter with a non-human entity and becomes pregnant as a result with Jesus. Now, Christianity tells that story as if it's a unique story, but it's not. Jesus's cousin in the Bible, very, very similar story. Uh, a lady who's not going to have a baby, in Elizabeth's case, it's not because she's a virgin, it's because she's post-menopause, has a close encounter with the same entity that her cousin Mary encountered, and now she's pregnant with John the Baptist, a person that Jesus Christ said was the greatest human being who ever lived. 
quite an accolade. But they're not the only two. You go back to the beginnings of the biblical story to Abraham and Sarah, the progenitors of the Hebrew people. They have a close encounter with non-human entities. Uh, and at that time, uh, Sarah is post-menopause. She can't have children. But after that close encounter, she has a child, Isaac. And that's the beginning of history in the Bible. So you've got a few stories there, but then they're not unique within the Bible. Listen to the story of the Yellow Emperor, the story of Lao Tzu, the story of Vipassi Buddha, the 22nd incarnation of Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. It's the same story. There's something anomalous happens that results in the conception of this child. And the stories from the East are quite specific, in fact, that these are encounters that are phenomena of light coming from something seemingly in space directly onto the mother and resulting in a conception. Now, you might say, look, these are all famous people uh, who want others to follow them. They need a story like that to get attention, except that stories are far more common than that. And there are women around the planet today who will describe the same experiences, but not publicly, they don't go around boasting about these experiences. Uh, people hold these stories very, very close. But I've met with women who would say something like this, I have four children. The third one, he's the different one. He's the one who has always been very advanced, uh, incredibly intelligent, uh, with a fascination for the cosmos, very sensitive, um, it has abilities that you might say are almost psychic. And there was something unique about that conception, and it was an experience of light. So these are not stories that, as I say, women go around boasting with. They're stories that are very secret. They are held very close, will be told to very, very few people. But it's the same story that you hear in some of these more famous people who were significant because of their intelligence significant because of their higher consciousness. So the story of Jesus fits within that much bigger family of stories. So the short answer is, I think Jesus was a hybrid, same as you and me, but maybe with a little bit more ET advantage than the next guy. On our channel, we talk about star seeds and you brought up star children. And we also talk about the earth going through an ascendance. Do you think that we're going to ascend and we're going to make it out of this? Is that your prediction for the future? Or do you think we'll go through another cataclysm and start all over again? By out of this, I uh, presume you mean out of this mess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we get better? Uh, I'm hopeful of that because something that I've discovered in ancestral narratives all around the world and in the Bible as well is the notion that you and I, each one of us, is surrounded by a little cloud uh, of helpers. And they may be ancestral help, they may be ancestral spirits, they may be interdimensional beings, such as Plato described. If I go to a traditional healer, for instance, in southern Africa, uh, the healer will perceive me entering the room with a little cloud of helpers. And his or her job is to tune in to what they're saying 
about supporting my progress and supporting my health. I, I've come to believe that's true. That is there in the New Testament as well. It's there in primitive Christianity. And in my coaching, I often say to people, do you know what? I'm coming to believe we all have an invisible support team. And I've yet to say that to someone who doesn't say, yes, I'm coming to believe that as well. And they're not getting it from their religious views. They're getting it from their experience. So that makes me somewhat optimistic that there is actually a lot of contact going on, that it's not just unusual people like Plato have these contact experiences, but that we are all in contact and we're in contact with entities. The New Testament calls them spirits. Um, that doesn't tell you what they are or where they're from, uh, but that they're there to support and help us. They are supporting us because they do want us to evolve, to ascend, to get out of this mess. Now, whether or not we do, I, I, I wouldn't want to predict. I would just say that the help is there for us to ascend, for us to evolve. I am blown away by the rapid learning and reframing that is being experienced by people all around the world right now. I'm meeting people of every age people into their 80s saying, I feel I am waking up for the first time in my life. I no longer believe what I did 10 years ago. And I have a huge appetite on me to find out what's really going on and what I'm really capable of. And hearing that from all generations, I find it inspiring and exciting. That makes me optimistic. And I just wonder if as a species, we're in a different place than we've been before uh, as a planet as a solar system, as a galaxy, we're in a different space where something different is possible. And I feel there's been a real acceleration of that kind of discovery, exploration, and a real acceleration of contact experiences that makes me hopeful that, yes, we can ascend. Yes, we can have a better human experience on planet Earth. How do you reconcile spiritual experiences like NDEs and mystical experiences with those of alien ET contact abductions in the physical plane, when generally speaking, the latter is mostly frightening and traumatizing, and the former is enlightening, loving, and soul-expanding? I don't think I would describe a dichotomy quite like that. I think there is a huge spectrum uh, of contact experiences going on now and that has always happened. And I think within that spectrum, there are some very 3D entities like ourselves, people like ourselves from other planets who come and colonize Earth in the deep past for similar reasons that, that we colonize each other's countries. And so I think there's a very real um, flesh and blood experience that people have. Some of those experiences are frightening. Some are traumatizing, but there are plenty of experiences that are not, that are puzzling. And there are people, even people who describe abduction experiences, who report that not as a terrifying experience, but as something that happened to them that put them in company with entities that actually they came or have come to quite like. So that's just a fascinating spectrum all its own. And then also, if we're talking about contact experiences, 
there are the more mystical experiences that would appear to be interdimensional experiences. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to know if you are experiencing uh, an inter simply an interference in consciousness or if it's communication from another 3D flesh and blood entity, but they communicate telepathically, or if you're in contact with an entity that's not physical, that is energy-based, or that is trans-dimensional in some other kind of way. When you listen to the great plethora of ancestral narratives from around the world, all those types of experiences are listed. And sometimes there's a bit of agnosticism as to who or what you're in contact with. In 1 John 4 in the New Testament, the writer there is a little bit agnostic about who or what these spirits are who are going to be communicating with you. Uh, to him, it doesn't really matter as long as we keep our sovereignty and weigh up what we hear and, and think, does that make sense? Do I want to do something about that or not? As long as you keep your autonomy, he says, uh, it's good to be in contact because you're going to be getting some good information from these spirits doesn't say what they are are they ancestral spirits are they a higher self interdimensional beings energy-based beings the word spirit in some cultures doesn't mean a disembodied or a non-corporeal entity um, a moon spirit for instance in uh, papua new guinea uh, is a being that looks like a gecko it's a physical being if you go to Plato, when Plato describes his um, kaikion ceremony, which was an, a, a near-death ceremony, so it was designed to take you to a near-death state in order to give you access to uh, other beings through interdimensional communication, he was a little bit agnostic as to who the guides were who guided him. Was it ancestral spirits? Was it other kinds of entity? Was it physical entities from another dimension? Again, agnostic. He just says what the learnings were that he took away from that. And some of those experiences can be terrifying. When people do something like the Kaikion ceremony today, some people will come away saying, actually, part of that was really awful and felt terrible and was super scary. And then others will come back and say, I had the most profound counseling in that experience. And for some, it's a bit of a fusion. So I think the short answer to your question is, in Echoes of Eden, I present a huge, diverse spectrum of experiences which our ancestors have shared for thousands of years, but which somehow have never quite made it into our school textbooks or become official science or made it onto the news, other than perhaps a you know, story of curiosity in the National Enquirer. But it is part of the human experience. That is ages old. I've had two or three people that said that during their near-death experience, they went to a water planet. Is there anything in the ancient literature that talks about a water planet? Well, in the creation narratives of many cultures, the story begins on a water planet, uh, and it's planet Earth. Uh, so that's certainly part of the thought world of our ancestral narratives. Other water planets and other parts of space, that's not something I've encountered particularly. Um, but ask me in a few months, and I might have probed some stories that uh, do cast some light on that. But other planets, it's interesting. 
there is such a taboo on this topic within Christianity today. But you go back to the beginning of Christianity and you had very significant teachers and writers who are very open-minded about our going to other planets through altered states of consciousness or even after this material life. And the idea of a populated universe with a diversity of planets and a diversity of beings, that was all part of the mainstream conversation at that time. And it's only in the time since, as orthodoxy has narrowed, that we have stopped talking so freely and openly about that. And that's why I'm going to have to go away and study up on that topic, because I actually don't know all the stories that are out there about what the other planets are. I know regions of space that crop up in cultures uh, all around the world that get repeated. Orion, Sirius, the Pleiades, and what planets um, orbit the stars in those places is very relevant to the kinds of entity that have come here because the kinds of entity that have come here have been very compatible with planet Earth, whether they live in underwater bases, as many of our ancestors say, or they walk on the land. The fact that uh, underwater bases is named so many times does hint at the possibility that some of those planets might be more water-based than this one, and hence their preference for that. The Babylonian story of Oannes and the Apkalu hints at people who are semi-aquatic, and maybe for that precise reason. Do you think that the underwater bases here on this planet are encapsulated or closed bases like they're still breathing air, or do you think that the aliens are aquatic-based? Well, it could be both, but certainly there are uh, underwater bases where people can go and breathe air, because when you listen to the indigenous stories of abduction around the world, what we hear of is of people being taken for two, three, four years, used for hybridization, and then returned. Every culture around the world has a version of that story. And in almost all of them, it's specified they're taken to underwater bases. So that's an air-breathing environment that you or I could live quite well. I say quite, I don't think I could live quite happily in that environment, but I could survive in it. All right, Paul. Well, I've probably gone over time with you, so I need to kind of tie things up. When is your new book going to be out? Well, you can pre-order the Kindle edition of Echoes of Eden uh, right now. If you go to Kindle, you can place your pre-order, and then on May the 1st, it'll be downloaded, and you can start reading it. And the paperback edition, unfortunately, you can't pre-order that. You're going to have to wait for May the 1st. And then you can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Hive, wherever books are sold, and you can buy your copy of Echoes of Eden there. And if you do that, I would love to be in conversation with you. So you can go from there to paulanthonywallace.com. You can contact me through my website, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com. And I'm always in the comments uh, on my YouTube channels in conversation with people. So that's the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. Well, now that you've finished this book, what are you working on next? Well, I um, uh, I can't believe, but I am already uh, making notes and doing the research for the next book. So I've had Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, 
the next book's got to have Eden in the title mm -hmm. somewhere, but it's going to be about the Bible before God. I argue in Escaping from Eden that the Bible is full of stories of paleo contact. So that raises the question, what was the Bible about before it became a book about God? And that's to say God doesn't feature in the Bible, because I believe God does. But there are stories, plenty of other things, washing around there. So what was the Bible before the 6th century BCE, when it was reworked to be a seamless story about God? That's where I'm going. Are there texts out there that just were not included in the Bible that you're going to be referencing? Well, those are certainly very interesting, and I'll certainly touch upon those. But my main focus will be on the Hebrew texts themselves, which have been curated with incredible fidelity through the centuries. We can be very confident what the texts were in the 6th century BCE when they were reworked. And then by doing the etymology, going to root meanings, we can go further back in time than that to find out what these stories really were, what they were telling us about and why and what we need to do about it. Have you done a lot of study into the Kabbalah? No, I haven't, as it happens. And it's interesting you raise that because there are so many layers to the text. And so I talk about the 6th century BC edit, and um, I don't say that as if, oh, these naughty people, they try to hide the old stories. That's not the whole picture. At that point there were very profound truths and powerful information layered into the text. And so there are traditions within Judaism that go there and unpack all the richness of that wisdom. Uh, but I'm going somewhere else. Hmm. I'm going right into the historic roots and saying, what were these stories in the beginning? What was the original information? Well, when that book's ready, we've got to get you back. I would love to join you again. I always love my conversations with you, Jeff. Thank you. I enjoy them with you as well. And and I just want to say something, that the last time we spoke, I learned from you about acquired savant syndrome. And I've been mulling that in my brain over the last year. Since most of my guests are NDE experiencers, I feel that a lot of these people after their experience, kind of have some type of version of that syndrome. But it usually yes. results in psychic abilities, not the traditional mathematical or painting abilities. Yes. Well, that's right. You're absolutely right. But I would say that all of those are higher cognitive abilities. You know, you say psychic abilities, and some people, their minds immediately go to supernatural. Uh, I see it in terms of more of our brains switching on. And, and yes, I've experienced that as well. Many of the people that I've met through my coaching have been people who've had NDEs and who have, just as you say, come back with precognitive abilities or remote viewing abilities or telepathic abilities, which I believe that's, that's higher cognition functioning. And another aspect to the picture is many people who have close encounter experiences also have this release of higher cognitive abilities, not something they go around boasting about because, again, they don't want to be laughed at, they don't want to be experimented on or poked and prodded, but it is part of that pattern. And so there are many ways in which um, what company we're in, 
these anomalous experiences that we have and higher cognition, they are all interweaving themes. All right, Paul. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with a one last positive message? Absolutely. I think something I have uh, found really helpful reading ancestral narratives, two things. First of all, to realize I really do have an invisible team of helpers, whether it's higher consciousness, ancestors, other entities. The moment you begin to accept that and start looking for evidence of it, you'll find evidence almost on a daily basis. You've got company and you've got help. And I find that a really positive way to go through life because you begin recognizing those little nudges, those little synchronicities that are actually supporting your life, your human experience, your progress through life. So that's one thing. And another thing I'd say is that having read our ancestors' stories about energy-based beings, it makes me very conscious about my mood and being proactive about what mood I'm going to go through today in and making a decision before I step out of my front door, what energy am I going to bring to my interactions and conversations today? And I think the moment you get conscious about that and deliberate about it, it enables us to avoid getting pulled into the kind of funk that just listening to the news every day or going through each day on default that's where you tend to go, especially with all the stuff we're dealing with in the world right now. So I would say look look for your invisible team, look for the evidence, listen for the nudges, the encouragements, the coincidences helping you on your way, and just choose to operate in that higher energy that is always rewarded. If you go out and you are positive with the people you deal with, it will always be reflected back. You smile at that person, they're likely to smile back. And I find that more intentional way of going about things uh, has really helped me. I find it really important uh, at this point in history in particular. Thank you for those messages. And thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate you. And I wish you massive success with your new book. Oh, thanks, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.